I want to begin the recording today by letting you know that we had a technical difficulty at church on Sunday and we were unable to, to capture the sermon. And so I'm here in my living room re-preaching it for you. And I hope that that won't be too awkward. And I hope that this message uh, from the Word will will bless your heart. So let me pray to that end. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for life in Christ. Thank you for the privilege of being here and preaching the sermon again. And I trust that you have purposes in this, Father, and I rest myself in that. I pray that you would help me as I preach here with nobody in the room. I pray that you'd help me to feel alive and pray that you'd help the Word to feel alive. And I pray that you'd help me, Father, as my mind is now turning toward my sermon for this coming Sunday. I pray that perhaps the preaching here today would help me as I think about that. So again, Lord, I trust your purposes, and I trust that you'll bless the hearers. In the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. For the last six weeks or so, we've been talking about the doctrine of koinonia at Glory of Christ, and we began by defining the term as a commonness of life in Christ. The word koinos means common, and the word koinonia, therefore, means a commonness of life, and since I'm in Christ and other believers are in Christ, we have all of the most important things in life in common together, and therefore koinonia is a commonness of life in Him. And then based on that definition, we went on to meditate on some of the deeper aspects of our koinonia. We considered God's delight in being God, or what might be called the the koinonia of God, as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoy one another in eternal joy. Then we considered the fact that koinonia in the church is essentially an invitation from God to partake with Him in His own delight in Himself. Koinonia is the unbelievable plan of God to include sinners like us through Jesus Christ in the very joy of the Trinity, in the eternal delight of the Trinity, and that's really enough to take anybody's breath away if you really think about the truth of that. And then based on those facts, we have moved on to consider a number of metaphors for the church, And we've tried to understand something of what those metaphors tell us about how God thinks about the church and what his purposes are in the church. Because when you look at the way that God talks about the church, you learn something about how he thinks about the church. And so it's crucial for us to understand why he has chosen the particular metaphors that he's chosen. Specifically, Pastor Kevin led us a few weeks ago to think about the church as the household of God. And then over the last few weeks, I've led us to think about the church as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And along the way, we've seen, among other things, that God's main thoughts about the church are communal thoughts. When he looks at us, he does see individuals, and he does preserve our individuality. But the main thing that's in the mind of God when he sees the church is a body, a bride, a a temple, a, a people. We are made up of many parts. We are many individuals. But together in Christ, we are one singular body. And God is pleased to dwell in us as a body. And God will be pleased to present us to Jesus Christ as a bride when he brings history to its final consummation. This morning, we're taking a turn in the series And we're going to begin meditating now on a number of practical matters that I hope will help us to answer at least two questions. There'll be other questions that come up, and hopefully we'll be able to answer them as well. But there are two main questions that we have our eyes on right now. Number one, 
how in practical terms does God actually go about creating koinonia in the church? So we've looked at some of the, the deeper things that God is up to. Now we're asking a very practical thing. In, in real churches like this, on a day-to-day basis, how does our Father go about doing what he's up to? And the second related question is, how do we get involved? How can we participate with him in what he is doing? I'm very excited to take this practical turn today and to try to answer these questions over the next few weeks because my wife and I have been thinking about these these issues for, for many years, really since 1994 when my mother died. And so I've got a lot of thoughts about these things and I'm excited to start laying them out to you in a series of sermons. But I have to admit that I do have one concern as we begin to take this turn. Practical things are, are easier to talk about. Practical things are, are easier to get our minds around. They're easier to articulate. They're easier to understand. And practical things are easier to apply to our lives. But here's my concern. If we simply give ourselves to practical things and forget the reasons why we're doing those things, then we limit both God's glory and our joy in those things. And so I want to begin this turn toward the practical by encouraging us as a church to keep thinking about the deeper things that are involved with Koinonia. I want to encourage us to keep meditating on amazing texts like John chapter 17 and like 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 5, especially the, the second half of that chapter, and Revelation 19 and so many other texts that we've brought up over the last few weeks. And I pray that as we do that, that we'll ask the Lord to open our eyes to what he's up to in the church and what he's thinking about in the church. Because the more that his mind shapes our mind for the church, the more that he'll get the proper glory he deserves out of the church. The more that we'll have proper joy in taking our part in the church. And the more we'll have the right motivations in playing the part that God has assigned for us to play. So again, I'm simply asking that as we turn toward the practical that we not forget the theological because the the theological things are the foundation for the practical things. And everybody knows that a building, a structure is only as strong as the foundation on which that structure is built. So indeed, let's remember the theological as we turn toward the practical. Now, as I thought and prayed about the question about of how God creates koinonia in the church, A whole number of issues came to my mind, and I spent a lot of time thinking about those issues when John and I were stuck on the trains together in India. I spent hours of of that time just sort of meditating and processing and outlining my thoughts about this. And from the very outset, I could see that that spiritual gifts were going to have to play a prominent role in in how we begin to roll this out before you, because the Bible is pretty clear that God gives gifts to every single member of the church, and then he uses those gifts to build up the body as a whole. It's a beautiful thing that the Lord does. He uses the body to build up the body to the glory of his name. So I had planned to begin this turn toward the practical by addressing uh, the topic of spiritual gifts, but as I was spending some time with the Lord uh, a week or two ago, he helped me to see pretty clearly that there's another subject that has to be dealt with first. And namely, that subject is the establishment of authority and leadership within the church. It seems to me that the first step God takes in building koinonia among his people in any given situation or in any given church 
is to appoint leadership and to vest them with authority in that church that's commensurate with what God has called them to do. As a, a partial fulfillment of his new covenant promise in Ezekiel 34, God begins building his church by providing his people with shepherds who really love them, who serve them, and who live for the glory of God's name, not for the glory of their own name. These shepherds are, are far from perfect, as I am ready to testify, and as Mike and Kevin are also ready to testify. But the, the thing I'm pointing to here is not perfection, but sincerity. When God is in fact involved in building a local church, He begins by giving that church sincere and loving and godly and God-centered shepherds. Now, I'm sure that there are, are some of us that bristle at this line of thought because much of our experience with authority structures, whether in the church or outside of the church, has not been exactly stellar. We've seen corruption in our lives, both inside the church and outside the church. And at the very least, in the secret places of our hearts, we've come to believe that the authority structures themselves are the problem. I think this is where in our culture you hear so much today about people not wanting to be involved in organized religion. Some people are just using that kind of talk to, to dismiss the conversation and to dismiss themselves, if you will, from, from their obligations before the Lord. But I think that there are other people who've, who've been genuinely hurt by authority structures in the church and they're wounded. They're hurt. And they, they just don't really know what to do. They don't know where to go with themselves. And so they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and essentially um, just rejected the church completely. Well, I do sympathize with that sentiment because I too have been involved in some situations in churches that were were difficult. And in one particular situation, it was pretty horrible. And I know what the pain of, of suffering under bad leadership is about. I really do. But I must say that I don't think that that um, rejecting authority structures right out is in line with the mind of God and with the word of God. God himself is the creator of both the idea and the reality of governance. And both the idea and the reality of governance will exist forever. I take that thought from texts like Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah here was prophesying about the birth of Christ and then also about the destiny of Christ. And here's what he wrote. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, beloved, you have to see that these names for Christ, which are very well known all around the world, that they have to be understood in the context of governance because God has just said that the government shall be on his shoulders. So Isaiah is prophesying that Jesus will be called these particular names in light of the fact that he's governing the universe. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Isaiah goes on to say, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Beloved, the vision of God for the church and of the world is not the abolition of government, but the installation of an eternal and just and righteous government over which Jesus Christ will preside forever. And the Lord is so passionate about bringing this reality to fruition that he seals uh, his, his promise with this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. In other words, the passion of God will accomplish the purposes of God. And if God is passionate about something, and if he is determined to do something, answer me this, who will stop him? And I think the obvious answer to that question is no one will stop him. Beloved, governance is God's idea. And governance is fundamental to the kingdom of God, both now and forevermore. If you take away from the church or of the kingdom of God, from the kingdom of God, the idea of governance, you destroy both the church and the kingdom of God. Because governance is fundamental to God's vision of the kingdom, both now and forevermore. Therefore, when God thinks about how to build the church, or when God begins building koinonia in the life of the church, he begins by establishing a proper governance in that church. He begins by appointing leaders and vesting them with kingdom authority so that they have all the things that they need to accomplish his purposes. Not their purposes, but his purposes. Now this leads us back to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. Um, I'm just realizing because we're recording it in this way, that text didn't get read for you on this recording. But you might want to return uh, or turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And I'm basically just going to deal with the first 11 verses today. And then in the next couple of weeks, I'll deal with verse, uh, actually still with verse 11, all the way to verse 16 and kind of work out Paul's argument here. Paul begins Ephesians chapter 4 by calling believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, which he had just spent three chapters uh, describing. That's the, the structure of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 lay out the, the, the contours of what God has done for us in Christ. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 lay out the implications of what this should mean for our lives. And so beginning in chapter 4... Paul begins to work out the implications of our salvation. And the very first subject that he touches on is having a zeal for the unity of the body of Christ. Because in Christ, there's only one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then in verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But then, on, in the context of that kind of unity, Paul goes on to do something that's a little bit strange and builds tension into this passage, which we'll see how he releases that tension over the next couple of weeks. Paul goes on to say in verse 7 and following that this unity we have in Christ doesn't mean that we're all equally gifted or that we're all gifted in the same way. 
We have, he affirms, been given different gifts in different measures according to the wisdom of Jesus Christ, but somehow, some way, that difference in giftedness ends up to serve the good of the whole body. And in the following verses, Paul explains how this is so. He begins his explanation in verse 11 by saying that Jesus Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. In other words, he begins by saying that Jesus builds up his church by establishing proper governance in his church. That is the first step he takes in building practical body life or what we have called koinonia over the last many weeks. Now, in November and December of 2007, I preached several sermons on this one verse, and those messages are online, and so I'm not going to go into detail about what I think about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers at this time. Rather, at this time, I simply want to argue that however you understand these these various roles, it's clear that Jesus Christ himself has put real people in those roles and he's given them real authority in the church. It's clear that Jesus Christ begins building up his body by establishing an authority structure in his body. Now I thought about this over the last week and I, and I, 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 several stories in the Bible came to my mind to illustrate how Jesus practically takes men and puts them into the authority structure of the church. And so I just want to summarize three of those for you now. We see this reality of the appointment of Jesus in the lives of the original 12 apostles because as Larry Sison pointed out at our last men's meeting, uh, none of those men chose Jesus. Rather, he handpicked each and every one of them, right? These guys didn't watch Jesus walking down the road and then decide that it'd be a good idea to follow him. Rather, Jesus was walking down the road and said, Hey, Peter, you follow me. Andrew, you follow me. Matthew, you follow me. And so on and so forth. Jesus Christ handpicked each of these men. And then in due time, he gave them quite a position of authority that lasts to this day. And you know how their authority lasts to this day? comes through the writings of the New Testament. God used the apostles to pen the Bible that we base our lives upon to this day. And in this way, God is still honoring the authority that he gave to his original 12 apostles. He appointed them, he placed them, and he gave them uh, an, an authority, a real authority that was commensurate with the role that he had given them. We see this reality also in the life of the Apostle Paul, who was, as it were, the 13th Apostle. In my view, Paul was God's replacement for Judas, and so in a way he's really the 12th Apostle. I don't think Matthias was God's choice for the 13th Apostle. I think the other Apostles were getting ahead of the Lord there in Acts chapter 1. But later in Acts, we see that God did stop Paul as he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And Jesus Christ appeared to him and knocked him off his horse or his donkey or whatever and made him blind and said to Paul, Now I'm going to show you how many things you have to suffer for me. You've caused others to suffer and now I'm going to show you what you will suffer. So go into the city. There will be a man named Ananias there and he will tell you more about these things and all of that happened. And then amazingly in Acts chapter 13, when the believers were gathered together in fasting and prayer, the Holy Spirit said to the church, 
set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now that is crucially important language because what that means is that Barnabas and Paul did not appoint themselves to the work that they did. The church did not appoint them to the work that they did. Rather, the Holy Spirit is the one who appointed Barnabas and Saul to the work that they did, and he, in fact, was the one to craft the work. Paul and Barnabas weren't even the ones to to kind of figure out what the work was. It's not as though the church is a, a corporation in the world, and God has saved some of us and then left it to us to figure out how to accomplish the mission. He's already determined all these things, and then he calls each of us that believe to play a crucial part in that. And again, here we see in Acts 13 that it's the Holy Spirit who does the appointing of the leaders inside the church, not the church itself and not those who are leading. We see this reality in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul tells the elders of the church of Ephesus that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers of the flock of God. That again is just crucial language. The elders of that church were not appointed by Paul. They were not appointed by the church. They did not appoint themselves. The Holy Spirit himself made them elders inside that church. Now, of course, the Lord uses processes. He uses means. He uses the discernment of the body. He uses the wisdom of other elders. But whatever means he uses, he is the one pulling the strings. He himself places leaders inside the church. He handpicks them by name. Finally, we see this reality in texts like Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which says this. He's talking to the rest of the church who are not elders. He's telling the whole rest of the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. They're not leading for their own good. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Beloved, it is a matter of fact that Jesus Christ begins building koinonia in his church by establishing an authority structure inside of his church and then vesting those leaders, vesting that structure with the authority that they need to accomplish his purposes. Now, I want to take this out of the the, the realm of the universal and take it to the realm of the particular. And I want to say a few words about how Mike and Kevin and I became elders at this church so that we can grow in the sense that the hand of Jesus Christ is is moving among us in a, in a very particular way and that he has personally appointed the elders that are serving here at this church. I'm going to start with myself because I was the first elder. From 2003 to 2006 or so, I served on the church planning committee at Bethlehem Baptist Church. And and during those years, we planted several churches, and we met with many other people who wanted to plant churches. So in June of 2005, when I was called to a meeting with some guys from the Rogers area to discuss their church planning proposal, honestly, it was just another church planting meeting for me. The, The meeting went well. I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I really did enjoy the time with Greg and, and the other guy, Bert, that was there at the time. We had a wonderful meeting, but still, honestly, when I left the meeting, it was just another church planting meeting to me because we had had so many like that over the couple of years that I worked with Kenny there. But as I left that meeting, we were at the Perkins on uh, 94 in Riverside in Minneapolis, and I left that meeting and drove toward St. Paul. I very strongly heard the Lord say to me, or I sensed him saying to me, uh, pay attention to this one. 
I didn't hear anything more than that, but I but heard those words very clearly. Pay attention to this one. And it, it really grabbed my attention, obviously, because, as I said, we'd met with so many other church planning uh, groups before that, and I had never sensed anything like that from the Lord. And so I told Kim about what had happened at that meeting, and I just went on with my life. But about a month later, the church planting committee convened again, and, uh, and, and of the four or five guys that were there at the first meeting with the people from Rogers, unfortunately only two of us were present at the second meeting, Kenny Stokes, who is the pastor over church planting at Bethlehem, and, and myself. And so I said to Kenny, I said, well, it's going to be kind of hard for us to follow up with the Rogers proposal because there's only two of us here, and the rest of the guys aren't there, aren't here. But uh, to my surprise, Kenny looked at me and said, well, that's okay, because you're the one that I want to talk to about this church. And he went on to tell me that he thought that I should come out to the Rogers Elk River area and be the one to pastor and to plant this church. Now, that really grabbed my attention, because it was quite a confirmation to me that when the Lord told me to pay attention to this one, he really meant it. Kenny and I had met with group after group for two years. Kenny knew that I was a skilled church planter, an experienced church planter. He knew that Kim and I had a heart to plant another church. And yet in all of the meetings and opportunities that had come up, he never once mentioned to me that I was a match with or or could possibly be matched with a particular group until now. And so this really grabbed my attention. Now at this point, the story gets a little bit complicated, and I'm going to spare you the details for now. Maybe we'll share the details with you at another time. There's nothing bad, it's just kind of a couple kind of funny things happened at that time, some miscommunications and stuff. But the Lord worked it all out, and some months later, I ended up uh, coming out to Rogers to meet again with Greg and Mike, and we talked for a couple of hours about the church plant, and I thought we just had a great meeting. I was very excited about it when I left. I was glad to get to know Greg and Mike a little bit better. I really just appreciated them and the Lord. And then I left uh, Greg's house in Rogers, and I began traveling back to White Bear Lake where I was living. And as I connected with 694 and I was going through Maple Grove on 694, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit came on me with such strength. I could feel it physically in my body so strongly that I literally thought to myself, do I need to pull over right now? Because it was so powerful. I don't know how to explain it to you other than just to say that the Holy Spirit came over my body. And I'll tell you, I knew at that moment that that God was calling me to come and be the pastor of that church. But I never told anybody about that story. In fact, this is the first time that I've publicly shared the story at all. Because in my mind, I thought, if God has really called me to this church, He'll work out all the details, and I don't need to try to massage or manipulate the events. God will do it. And if God has not called me to this church, then I won't be the pastor of this church. And so I just rested myself in that. I, I tucked away what God had done. I told Kimmy all about it. We prayed about it. We both had a sense of confidence about it. We knew that one day we would be here leading this church, but we left things to the Lord. And sure enough, one piece at a time, the Lord you know, brought this about and he brought that about. And I think by February of 2006, the group formally asked me to come and be their pastor. And I agreed to that. That is why I'm the pastor at Glory of Christ Fellowship this day, and that's why I hope to be the pastor here for some years to come. Now, I tell you this story simply to say that like Paul and Barnabas, and like so many millions of pastors before me and that will come after me, 
I did not appoint myself to the task of being an elder at this church. Bethlehem Baptist Church, as big and as influential as it is, did not appoint me to come here and be the pastor of this church. The core group that made up Glory of Christ at that time did not appoint me to be the pastor of this church or one of the elders here at this church. Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of the church, handpicked me and called me by name and set me in authority in this church. He is the one responsible for it. As I said earlier, of course, he uses processes. He used my own prayer life. He used my wife's prayer life. He used Bethlehem. He used the small group. He used all kinds of things. But he is the one, ultimately, that was pulling the strings. Now, one of the guys that was serving with me on that church planning committee, his name was Craig Sturm. Craig, at that time, was a a pastor in the family discipleship department at Bethlehem, and he had visited the group in Rogers, and and therefore he knew that we were going to need help with children. At, At that time, we had like five families, and we already had 25 children in the group, somewhere around there. And so we knew that God was going to want to use this group to really invest in future generations and and be a church where there were lots of children and lots of that kind of vibrance. But I could tell the first time I met with the group that I was going to need help in this area, and Craig could see it as well. And so he talked to one of the staff people there at Bethlehem, and he suggested that this guy come and consider uh, uh, coming out here with us to plant this church, and that guy was, was Kevin Fetter. Now, when Kevin first heard about the church plant, his uh, initial reaction was, uh, why would I want to do that? And I always tease him about that, but the truth is, that's the first question that went through his mind. He uh, had a good job at Bethlehem. Things were going well for him. Life with his wife Karen and their kids at that time was going well, and he just didn't see much sense in, uh, in, in moving in this direction, moving up to another place and helping start a church. And I always like to tease him and tell him that the only reason he came to that initial meeting was because he was going to get a a free meal out of it. Pastors never pass up free meals, and we always seem to sense the Spirit of the Lord there when someone offers to buy a meal for us, you know. So I like to tease him about that. But you know, the truth of the matter is that the reason Kevin came out and had that meal with me that day is because he's a humble man. And he's submissive to the Holy Spirit. And he's submissive to the leaders in his life. And so he came out to meet me. And the awesome thing is that we really hit it off. We really had a common sense of vision about what the, the church ought to be. And in fact, now in this Quinonia series, we're, we're starting to really give shape to the things that Kevin and I talked about uh, the very first time we met and have continued to talk about over the years. And so since that meeting went so well, we decided to get our wives together and see what they thought. We we each trust our wives' discernment so much. We uh, I've said for years that uh, women's intuition plus the Holy Spirit equals the gift of discernment. And I see that in my wife uh, so much. She's helped me in so many situations to discern the will of the Lord. And so I trust her. Kevin trusts his wife. So we got them together to see what they thought, and, and that meeting went really well. And so we decided to bring Kevin and Karen and the kids into the life of the small group, and, and we did that. And uh, and I think it was two months later that the group formally embraced Kevin to come and be our pastor for family discipleship. Now, again, the point in me telling you this story is not to say something about Kevin, but it's to say this. Kevin did not appoint himself to this job. If it was up to him, he never would have even considered, much less come out here with us to glory of Christ. 
uh, Bethlehem did not appoint Kevin to this job. In fact, there's no sense in which uh, Bethlehem sent Kevin out here. They, they released him. They allowed him to quit his job and come here, but they did not send him out here. Uh, this small group, even though we affirm Kevin, we're not the ones that appointed him to be an elder for family discipleship here. Jesus used things in people's lives, certainly, to do in Kevin what he did. But the point I'm making is that Jesus personally handpicked Kevin Fetter and made him the pastor for family discipleship at this church. It was his doing. Finally, there's Mike Perry. And as I said to Mike on Sunday morning, I have to be honest and just say he was the most reluctant elder candidate that I think I've ever seen. And what I mean is this. Everybody around Mike saw that he should be an elder before he was convinced that he should be an elder. He holds the office of elder in very high regard, and and he should. And he had some legitimate objections and, and hesitations to giving himself to eldership right away. And so Kevin and I just gave him all the space that he needed, because you, you cannot force a person to be an elder. You can't guilt a person into being an elder. Being an elder is something that a man has to desire deeply, uh, from within his heart, it's part of the the way that you discern calling in a man's life, and so we just kept, you know, doing ministry with Mike and going along the process, knowing that someday he'd probably be an elder at Glory of Christ. And when the time was right, the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of him, and he became as excited to be an elder as he ever was reluctant to be an elder. I remember one of the turning points. I remember him saying to me that he felt like he was being a little bit like Moses where the Lord was calling him to a, to a task, and he kept telling him all the reasons why he couldn't do that task. But eventually the Lord helped him see that even in his weakness, that he had handpicked Mike Perry to be an elder at this church. And so again, one more time, the reason I'm telling that story is to say that Mike did not appoint himself to eldership. If it was up to Mike, he probably would not be an elder in the church to this day. The church had a part in his process, but we did not appoint Mike to be an elder at this church. All we did was affirm what we saw Jesus Christ doing. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, the Lord of the universe, handpicked Mike Perry, called him by name, and installed him as an elder in this church. Beloved, I can say to you with utter humility, but also with complete confidence, that the three elders that are over this church today have been appointed by Jesus Christ and put in that role. There's literally not a single shadow of doubt in my mind about that fact. And this is a crucial starting place for thinking uh, about our life together as a church because it establishes two things. First of all, it puts Jesus Christ in the place where he properly belongs Namely, at the head of the church. Because <clears throat> he alone is responsible for appointing us to our positions. Jesus is the, the head of the church in a universal sense. He's the head of the whole entire church. But he's also the head of every single particular church anywhere in the world. And he does not... Um, outsource his choosing of leaders in every single church in the world. Jesus Christ personally handpicks every single leader in every single true church all across this world. And that's a beautiful thing. And so the main thing that this teaching does that I'm bringing today is it puts Jesus Christ in his rightful place at the absolute head of the church as the Lord of the church. The second thing that this teaching does is that it does vest divine authority into the elders of the church. 
And I think that the, the best model for understanding what that means is that of a household. In the household, uh, the Bible is very clear about this, that God has vested the authority for that household in the husband. The husband and the wife are completely equal before the Lord as human beings. The husband is not superior to the wife. The wife is not inferior to the husband. The husband and the wife are complete equals with regard to, to their being and with regard to all kinds of matters, intellect, passions, skills, spirituality, uh, abilities, passions, whatever. But the thing is that the husband's role is to be the leader in that context. So there's equality of being, but there's a distinguishing of roles. There's distinction in roles for the good of the household and for the glory of God. And what God has said to the husband is, you are to lead your wife in the same way that Christ leads the church. You are to lead your wife with the heart, with the, with the passions, with the goals that Christ has for the church. And so he has given him authority, but it's an authority that's given for her ultimate good. I love to say to men, men, rise up in your families and lead. And what I mean by that is lay your life down for them. Lay your life down for their ultimate good. Give everything that you have for the good of your wife and the good of your children. Now, in the same way, I think that elders have been granted the privilege and responsibility of leadership in the church. This doesn't mean that we're better than anyone else. This doesn't mean that we're higher class Christians like in Hinduism. You know, their, their priests and spiritual leaders are literally of, a, of the highest class of society in their culture. And that's not the way Christians think. Elders in the church, like husbands, like fathers, have simply been given a role to play. And we've been given authority commensurate with that role. Now, I know that this analogy between the home and the church is a correct one because of what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, 4-5. Here's what he says. He says, He, the, the prospective elder, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the analogy here is a, is a correct one. Elders in the church are much like fathers in a family, and their authority is best conceived in those terms. Now, I'm going to say more about that next week, but I want to close today by just saying a word um, to, to, to those of us who are in authority, to Mike and Kevin and myself, but also there may be some listening to me that are either elders in other churches or perhaps will become an elder in our church someday or have some other position of authority. And I just want to muse for a second about what this teaching does in the, the psychology and in, in the heart of a leader and how we process this. This this kind of comes from some meditating I was doing earlier in the week, and I thought about a couple of examples in the Bible of, of how leaders responded when others rebelled against their authority and what that tells us about the the implications of of their authority. So the first story is that of of a man named Korah. It comes from the Old Testament, Numbers chapter sixteen, and you may remember that Korah, along with a couple of others, led a rebellion against Moses. And essentially, what he did was he stood up to Moses and said, "You're just a man, and I don't know who you think you are, but you're not a man of God. You've not been appointed by God to lead the people of Israel." And as is often the case with people who are rebelling against authority. Korah thought that he instead should be the one that was in, in leadership. He, he thought that he was the one with divine authority to lead the people of Israel. 
Now what I love about Moses here is that he doesn't let himself get into a, a long protracted debate with Korah about these things. And he doesn't go and marshal his forces to try to physically fight against Korah. Moses could easily have done that. He could have gathered a small army and just physically fought these guys and and just uh, see who won at the end of the day. But in his calmness, in his uh, security as one who had been led by the father, he simply said to Korah, all right, you've gone too far this time, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to meet in a certain place at a certain time and we're both going to give offerings to the Lord and we're going to let the Lord judge between me and you and see who is in fact the divinely called leader of the people of Israel. And so they did meet in that time and place. And you probably remember that the Lord's verdict was that the, the earth opened up. It, it, there was a great earthquake and the Lord, the earth cracked open and Korah and his followers literally fell inside of the earth and were swallowed up and killed that day. And so God spoke very plainly as to what he thought. Now, I grew up in earthquake country in Southern California, and I've seen many, many earthquakes in my life. In fact, I went out to the San Andreas Fault one day out by the desert where you can literally see where the earth has been split open by the shifting plates there, by, by the activity of earthquakes over the years. I remember one of our family friends once after a particularly big earthquake he went out into his front yard to see that part of his driveway had actually split off and was now in in his neighbor's property because the earth split and actually moved. And so it's not hard for me to believe that something like this could happen. The, the timing is miraculous. But I believe that the earth could open up like this and swallow a man, and that's exactly uh, what it did. Um, God spoke in judgment and, and confirmed that he had indeed called Moses. Now, again, what touches me about this story is not so much the particulars with Korah, but the sense of calm, uh, the sense of confidence, and the sense of humility that Moses could have in just knowing that he was called by God. When a man has been called by God and put in place, he doesn't have to strive to argue for his place. He doesn't have to you know, make a big fuss and, and uh, gather people to defend him when others when others come against him. He just simply has to stand and say, let the Lord speak. If he's called me, he's called me. If he's not, he's not. And it just really blesses me. As a leader, as an elder, that kind of calmness and confidence really blesses me. The second and final story that's on my mind this morning is, is Timothy. He was the pastor of the church in Ephesus for a time, and he must have been a relatively young guy. Because it seems that some people in the church didn't think he was old enough or skilled enough to do the job. Now you have to remember that the Apostle Paul was the one who started this church and he was there for three years. And so the great Apostle Paul, in, in, in all that he was, was the pastor of the church in Ephesus for three years. And then you just have to have some sympathy for the people in Ephesus because when Paul leaves, he leaves this young buck named Timothy in charge. And really compared to Paul, who is this guy? He's young, he's inexperienced, he's not up to the level of Paul, and so, you know, some people just didn't feel like it was right for him to, to be the pastor of the church. Don't know how serious this rebellion was, we don't know how vehement the people were, we don't know if they were organizing against Timothy, or if they were just complaining, or what, we just, we really don't know. But we do know that there was a problem, because of what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.12. He said, Let no one despise you, Timothy, for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in, in purity. Excuse me. Now, we often quote this text to youth, 
and try to use this text to encourage them to engage in the fullness of life in Christ. We try to try to help them see that just because they're young, it doesn't mean that they can't be involved in the kingdom, and that's all well and good. But I have to say that that is a misinterpretation of this text. This text is not aimed at youth. This text is aimed at a young pastor who is being criticized and who is being called into question by fleshly Christians who didn't have eyes to see what Jesus was up to right in front of them. And I just love what Paul's solution is to this because he didn't tell Timothy to defend himself. He didn't give Timothy advice on how to do that. He didn't take any action against the scoffers. Paul didn't write a letter to the church on Timothy's behalf trying to explain to them uh, you know, why they really should submit to his leadership. Rather, he simply told Timothy, listen, brother, just live the life of Christ before the people and God will establish your leadership. Live the life of Christ before the people. He will raise you up as a leader. And those who are, are truly in Christ, they will submit to your leadership. And I just love that, beloved. I love it as an elder because, again, it gives me a sense of calm, a sense of confidence, a sense of humility before the Lord and the people. Because if God has appointed us as elders, then he's appointed us as elders. And if he hasn't, he hasn't. And we don't need to argue with people. We don't need to organize against people. We don't need to try to assert our authority. We don't need to try to demand that people submit to us. We simply need to rest in Jesus Christ that he's done what he's done in the church and then submit ourselves to him as well as we can. So, again, the overall point for today is that Jesus really has appointed leaders in every church. He begins building koinonia like this. He really has vested authority in those leaders, and he's commanded the rest of the church to submit to their leadership. This is just a, a plain reality for anybody who takes the Bible seriously. He has done this not to prop up those leaders or to make much of them, but he has done this to build Koinonia in his church for the glory of his name. Next week we'll begin to see just how he does that. We'll see how he commands his leaders to lead. We'll see what he commands his leaders to do and how that ends up building the unity and the, the koinonia of the church. But for now, I just want us to, to spend some time meditating on this fact that authority comes from God. Jesus has established authority in the church and that it's real authority to which we're all called to submit. Let me pray now. Father, I want to thank you once again for the privilege of being able to preach this sermon, even sitting here in my living room alone. It has blessed me to rehearse these things again. And I pray that the ideas that are of you would stick and that they would have a fruitfulness through the Holy Spirit. I pray that the things that were of me would just fade away, Father, and be forgotten. So please, Father, I, I ask you to bear the fruit that you have already purposed to the glory of your name. And I give you thanks and I give you my praise for that. In the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening and God bless you.